Here she's putting all that stuff in baggies. That? Oh, hidden. Yeah. Don't you hear they're getting it to Sandy's? Yeah, honey, that you're, that you're hoarding. Okay, it says live. It says live. Pass it on. Okay, I don't think you guys read... Uh, Verse from one nine. You didn't read any verses from one nineteen last week, did you, Burke? Thank you. Say who? You didn't read any verses from Psalm one nineteen last week, did you? No, I did not. Okay, well, I'm going to do it then. We're in uh, Psalm one nineteen, verse seventeen. This is Gimel. Uh, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, you rebuke the proud, the cursed who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight, counselors. Well, eighteen, that's eighteen verse. Yes. What I always pray every time I open the. What's that? Open down my eyes so that I <laughs> to see wonderful things in your word. I absolutely agree. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you that uh, it is such a precious gift that you've given us, something of infinite value, which is limited or finite in size. Lord, we uh, commit this service to you, and we do ask that you uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Thank you for those who are here and those who are on their way. Please... Uh, Bring them here safely, and uh, lots of people that are either traveling or sick today, we would pray for them that they would travel safely or that they would get over their sickness. And uh, Lord, uh, thank you for this word. Thank you for the beautiful weather we have and for the fellowship of believers. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. And we exalt you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's see here. Oh, that's Tom. Hey, Tom, how you doing there? Let's see here. Um, I think we're in Romans still, aren't we? Book of Romans? <coughs> yes, Romans chapter 2, and we're in the 12th verse. Now, a couple things to announce because uh, we are streaming online. Hey, Paul, how are we doing there? Um, we are streaming online, and um, last week we had a Bible study with Burke, and the, uh, the um, video and audio didn't work too well for the first part of it, but he has the um, Old Testament prophecies and then the New Testament fulfillment in them and then his commentary as well. And Jim Dwyer took all of that and he put it on one document, all very organized. And if anybody online wants that, email me and I can send you all of that information, all of the Old Testament prophecies and how they're fulfilled in Christ. And uh, you also can get that directly from Burke here in the class. So um, uh, thank Jim, even though he's not here tonight, that uh, uh, he did that for him. And uh, then one other thing, for people that are streaming online, some people have trouble with YouTube. You know, it's, it's like delayed or there, it jumps sometimes. It depends on what, you know, different uh, video streaming services will affect different things. Like I've got an iPad or I've got a Galaxy or I'm on a computer. And so Sergio has now arranged it so that uh, streaming is also on Facebook. And so if you want to watch on Facebook, apparently it streams a little better with some of these different things. And what you would do is go to the Superior Word website, which is um, facebook.com slash the Superior Word. And you can watch right online. And um, uh, I don't know which one is, you know, if there's a time delay in either of them or anything. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. But Sergio figured it out. So when it's streaming, it's streaming on YouTube. It's streaming on um, uh, Facebook. 
and um, it's uh, also if you go to superiorword.org, you can click on it there and it will take you to YouTube. So there's three ways of accessing the streaming, just so people know that. And uh, then we're in Romans chapter 2, as I said, verse 12. And let's see here. Um, Got to go back a little bit. I've got this cut on my finger. I cut right on the cuticle a couple days ago, and it's been bleeding for two days now. Mm -hmm. just, so I'm trying not to bump it and get blood all over the Bible. But uh, let's see here. Romans 2, verse 12. Um, for as many as have sinned without law will perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay, now that's based on, we'll go back and we'll read 10 and 11. That's based on what he has just said. Why, why did he say those words? He said, uh, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone, to the Jew first and to the Greek. So it's all encompassing, Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. Um, for there is no partiality with God. Okay, you've got Jew, you've got Greek. There's no partiality. God looks at all of us the same. And then, uh, for, and then this explains that for as many as have sinned without the law, meaning the Greek, would also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law would be judged by the law. So it doesn't matter. Whichever way you go, you're going to be judged, all right? And, um, uh, well, we'll get into that in just a second. Anyway, verse 12, my comments here. Today's verse begins an amazingly sobering thought concerning the nature of man. Our relationship with God as fallen creatures and our desperate need to get the word out to the people of the world. All of this is right in this one verse here. The thought begins with, for this begins a confirmation of what has previously been stated. To understand the context, take a moment, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 really quickly. I'm just going to read them to you. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice the same, uh, you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who sit, uh, judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God. And as I said earlier, he's kind of setting up his own Jewish brothers with this because he's been talking about these issues and he's saying, you owe man and, you know, but he's actually speaking directly to the Jews and he's trying to get them to understand that the law is not something that's going to save them. That God is impartial and that's why he's come to the point that he has in this verse today. Um, we'll go on. Um, for as many as you have sinned without law, is speaking about the entire scope of the people of the world who had not yet received God's law as was given to the nation of Israel. Everybody. So he said here, um, for as many as who have sinned without law will also perish without law. Very clear there. There's not a path to God apart from God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. He's saying anybody without the law is going to perish without the law because we all have sin in us. All right? Um, 
let's see here, where was that? Um, the words without law are translated from anomos. The a is a negative. You all know that. If you have atheists, it's a theos, no God, okay? So, amonos. A is the negative, and nomos is speaking of the law given to Moses through Israel. So, without law. This is the world at large, and it is speaking of all people, all people since the beginning of the world. They will also perish without law. Now, the question would be, how can that be? If there is no law to instruct the people, then how can they be condemned, right? Where's the fairness in this? Because you hear this all the time. Everybody asks that question. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody about Jesus, and the first thing they say is, what about the poor guy that's living in the jungle that has never heard of Jesus? Well, how do you answer that question, right? How do you answer that? He says, um, uh, these are the often asked and obvious questions of the people of the world. And then their statement is, it's not fair, <clears throat> right? I mean, that's just it, our natural inclination is to say, it's not fair. Well, who's the judge, them or God? Who is the creator, them or God? But this is making the assumption, when they say it's not fair, it's making the assumption that there is no standard at all by which we can be judged. If they say it's not fair, then there, there can't be a standard. It, it's just an arbitrary, I'm okay, I've done nothing wrong, there's no standard, right? Or the, the standard may be that I'm better than that guy. So you're grading on a bell curve or you're grading one against another, okay? So um, let's see here. Paul showed in the previous chapter, and will continue to show in the verses ahead, that there is a universally understood law, and it is written on our conscience. It's right there, and the conscience is what bears witness against us. A major premise of the Bible is that man has fallen. Where did that happen? Anybody know where that happened? Adam and Eve. What's that? Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. Mm -hmm. Man has fallen. That is the premise of the Bible from the first real dialogue of any substance at all in the Bible. God says some things to Adam in chapter 2. Chapter 3 immediately comes in, and man immediately falls. And then he's cursed, and, you know, they're exiled from Eden, and everything after that, the naming of the birth and uh, life of Cain and Abel, the naming of those boys, everything that they did. Somebody said something to me a day ago, and I'd never really questioned it, because I wasn't really going word by word in the Bible um, when I first started the Genesis sermons, and I kind of regret it. I'd like to go and back go back and redo Genesis from like Genesis 1 up to maybe chapter 28. But um, uh, she brought up a point, and you know, it would have made a sermon all by itself, but uh, Genesis 3, um, let me see if I can find this really quickly. What was her question? It was just a very good one. Um, chapter 4, um, she asked about Cain. Why did Cain, oh yeah, um, let's see here, cursed his brother, um, I know I'm not going to find it right away. I'm not going to spend all day on it, but it was a very good question. It's something I hadn't really thought about. It was concerning the seed of um, uh, Cain. And um, let me see if I can find that very quickly. Brother came and he killed his brother. And um, anyway, that's the, uh, that's the premise of the Bible. I'm not going to spend all day looking for that and uh, try to remind myself of everything that I uh, talked to her about because she asked a question, I gave her an answer, and then for the next several hours while I, I was out at work, here it is, it's verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has uh, anoint, uh, an appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And her question was, could it be that Cain killed Abel because he was the promised seed, that the line should have gone through him? The word seed, if you go through it in the uh, Old Testament, um, you know, that in Genesis 3, 
really quickly. I'll, I, we'll just go through this because I'm talking about the fall of man and that's pertinent to Romans. So this isn't really a rabbit trail. Um, verse 15 of chapter three says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, right? And it's speaking of the seed of the woman. Whereas all the rest of the Bible, it's always speaking about the seed of the man. The, you know, the line descends from the father, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It's always the seed of the man. But in the one instance of Genesis 3.15, it's the seed of the woman. Well, why would that be? It's because it's speaking of Christ, who is born of a woman, but not of a man. He's born of God the Father, right? And so her question was, was uh, and I'm, I, this isn't exactly her question because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but she said, um, um, could it be that he, Cain, killed Abel because he was the seed of Adam and he was the one to lead to the Messiah? And it's possible because it says God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. And why is that important? Is because then we get to chapter 6 of the Bible with the Nephilim. And people start getting into all these very, very not appropriate um, analysis of who uh, the Nephilim are. And the reason why is because, and I explained this in that particular sermon, progressive revelation. God progressively reveals what he is doing in the Bible. You don't need to get ahead of yourself in order to understand what has already happened. Now, that does not mean that there are things that you will learn by going ahead in the Bible. You'll learn a great deal. But when God is showing you something, it is logical, it's orderly, and it's progressive. And so we know that the Nephilim are not angels that came down and slept with man. It's a very popular teaching. It sells well. Anytime you get into the sensational, it always sells well. Always. But it does not mean that it is correct. The seed of man. When it says in the Nephilim, and this, once again, this all bears on what we're talking about in Romans, so I'm not getting off on it too great of a rabbit trail, but in um, Genesis chapter, um, uh, where is it, um, 6, now it came to pass that men began to multiply on the, the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So the sons of God... People will say, well, that's angels, or that's um, UFOs, it's whatever. They make up all of these things, and they say that. And the only place that people usually point to to justify that it's angels or that it's angelic beings is from the book of Job, where it says the sons of God came and presented themselves before um, the Lord. And the same term is used, B'nai Elohim there and B'nai Elohim there. So you have one instance of the sons of God being <laughs> angels in the Bible, from a narrative book, okay, which is not a descriptive book. It's not describing anything. It's I'm, I'm sorry, it's not prescriptive. It's not prescribing anything. It's just describing something. They give a title that the sons of God are angels, including Satan. They present themselves before the Lord one time. <laughs> and in the rest of the Bible, the sons of God are mentioned like a million times, meaning the people of the Lord. So, in other words, you have to discount all of the times Jesus said it, that Paul says it, all of these other people say the sons of God are the people, the people of God, and you have to choose one instance where it says the sons of God are angels from the book of Job. It's not really a, a good handling of the Bible, but you don't need to go to those later references. As I said, it's being progressively revealed, and there is one of the answers right there, which I had missed when I did the Genesis sermon, <clears throat> excuse me, is that um, 
uh, it, it says that, and as for Seth, to him also, I'm sorry, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Seth is in the line of Jesus. He is one of the sons of God, which is referred to in Genesis chapter 6. So the Bible is consistently and carefully showing us these things so that we don't make these theological errors and assume that angels are sleeping with men in order to make the Nephilim, which are destroyed, but it, guess what? The Nephilim are on the earth after the flood as well, and only eight people survived through the flood. Show that, so that shows you that there is a chosen line of God and there is a chosen or a non-chosen line of God. The Nephilim are people. They are not hybrid people, okay? They are human beings. Anyway, I won't get into that any deeper. If you want to watch that sermon, please go ahead and yes. <clears throat> what, where are these demons in Tartarus? Where did they come from and why are they there? The demons in what? Tartarus. In, the, in, the, in hell, yeah, yeah, Tartarus. Okay, where? What? Which verse are you referring to? Uh, this is getting in Second Peter. Yes, yeah, Second Peter. Okay, let me go there too. Um, Second Peter, and I, I, this one is going to be something that will not make anybody happy, but that's okay. Um, to Peter, and we've got. To, I've got to get that particular verse. So if you know where it is, point me to it, because um, I don't want to get off on too much of a a rabbit trail today. We will do that because you asked, but I don't want to get off on too much of a, a Nephilim and, and type of a rabbit trail today because I want to get back to Romans. But um, I'm looking at 2 uh, 4. 2 4. 2 Peter oh, 2 4. Okay, it says, For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness mm -hmm. to be reserved for judgment. No problem. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. Okay, and he uh, delivered righteous lot. Well, that's a jump to say that the angels that are in Tartarus are the same ones that are suddenly the sons of, uh, 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 they're the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6. One that was never revealed before Genesis chapter 6, so it doesn't show you any progressive revelation, but he's just making a statement is that God didn't even save the, the, the demons. If he wanted to consign them into hell, that's fine. It doesn't say that they were consigned to hell in Genesis 6. So you're taking one apple here and you're taking one orange here and you're saying that these two are the same thing. And it doesn't say that. The Bible never makes that, that uh, uh, connection. Same thing with the book of Jude. People use a, a portion from the book of Jude for saying that that is identifying the Nephilim, and let me go there really quickly. I, like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's a completely different study, but um, <clears throat> let me see if I can find it. Um, it says um, it's Jude, and it's only one chapter long, so it doesn't really matter. Um, we could look at it, the whole thing, and it wouldn't take long, but let me see if I can find the exact verse. Um, uh, Enoch, grumblers, let's see here, spots on your love feast, woe to them, speak... Um, okay, we'll just go back to verse 5. But I want to remind you, though, uh, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so he's speaking about the people that were brought out of Egypt who didn't believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, which is parallel to what uh, Peter said in 2 Peter, the verse that you just mentioned. Okay, then, verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire so you've got a third example for uh, verse 8 likewise also the, these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries then you have nine yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses did not bring against him a reviling accusation but said the Lord rebuke so he's going through an error a, a list of errors that both angels and humans have made and the people that support the view of the Nephilim being angels and sleeping with men will immediately tie this verse that is uh, verse 6 with verse 7 okay they're saying that see that verse 6 is speaking of angels verse 7 is speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah when he, all he's doing is, is giving you a list of error he's not connecting any one of them together each one of them is independent until you come to 9 which is explaining verse 8 but to say I why didn't he go backwards one and why didn't he equate the uh, verse 6 the angels with the people that came out of Egypt instead of going from verse 6 to verse 7 why didn't he go from verse 6 to verse 5 see what I'm saying it's just a litany of, of error that he is explaining there so in other words and I don't argue with people over this if people want to believe that it was angels that's fine people when they hear something will almost always believe what they hear the first time that's why we have oh do you know that I, I'm going to hell what? yeah I mean I've heard that a lot this week remember what I said during the prophecy update yeah. oh man I've had people just what? What? the what? King James only thing um, I've got some of the nastiest emails oh you're you're a false teacher and a heretic and you're this oh and that because because of King James only well, knew it I, and I knew it and I got to tell you what I've been getting this now from these people for years and years and it's just it's almost debilitating because if you derive your theology from emotion you will always always err in your theology and King James onlyism is solely based on emotion or it's based on um, uh, fallacies one of the guys said that um, uh, he emailed me and he gave me the name of a doctor and he says this is one of the greatest guys in the world and he's so intelligent that's a fallacy just because he's a doctor and he's an intelligent person has nothing to do with whether the doctrine is correct or not it has nothing to do with it I know Dr. Sproul is that he's a doctor he's one of the smartest people I've ever listened to in my life and yet he's wrong on dispensationalism am I to trust somebody their theology that I know is wrong because he's got a title boy that's a fallacy anyway so I just want you all to know that I won't be seeing you in heaven because they've all consigned me to the, the pit of heck and uh, why do they even bother to read I, I don't know I don't, I, I don't understand it if somebody doesn't agree with you just go away you know what why argue with people but that is what they heard the first time people that heard the Nephilim or angels the first time that's what they're gonna believe if you hear something unless you are willing to listen to another approach you're never going to change your theology and you still might not you might say well that's just not right I could be completely wrong on the Nephilim but it does not uh, it is not upheld by progressive revelation and in the Bible progressive revelation always explains what has happened by what is being now explained here Ruth comes after Joshua judges Ruth right and what does it say in Ruth it says in the time of the judges there is a, a logical order to what God is doing. He's showing us this slow, methodical pr progression of thought so that we can grasp it and we can say, I see what is going on. I can see it unfold. That's what Paul's, and we'll get, go ahead, we'll answer your question, then we'll go back into Romans. 
you ought to take it as a compliment that these people keep watching you and sending you. I don't think they'll ever watch me again if they're King James only and they heard me say that because it's just like anybody else. They just they want to argue. They want to argue their point. And my question to somebody that's King James only would be, where is the basis for that? Where is the basis for your belief in that? There has to be a basis in everything or it's just something that's man-made. And there is no basis at all. I will tell you this, and I, I could go get it. I've got it right over here, and we could do the rest of the study on King James Olneyism, and it, you would find it very interesting. But I'll just tell you really quickly. The basis of the King James Version translation is given at the beginning of the King James Version. It's called a preface, and they explain why they did that translation. They explain what brought them to it, they explain what changes they've made to previous versions, and one of the things, actually several of the things they say, one of the things is that there are certain words and phrases in the Bible that we do not know. They admit it. They do not know. Now, I've brought that up to King James-only people, and they say, well, God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, enlightened them to the correct translation, even though they didn't know what it was. They made a best guess. They also say in the preface that a multitude of translations is profitable for study because if you have a multitude, you may be getting the right answer when this one might be wrong. So they're admitting that don't use just the King James only uh, version also. They go through, and I assure you that this is correct, they go through every single argument that the King James only people have in their theology today, and they refute it before that cult came up. And yet people still will not read that preface. Instead, all they do is they start shooting out invectives with no basis for that theology at all. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to assume that that's the only inspired translation of God. But when you believe something because you were told by your first pastor, you will always believe it. So there's no point in arguing it, but it is wrong. Go ahead. Okay. You mentioned of Genesis 3.15. Yes. It's your seed speaking to the devil. Now, Jesus said you are your father, the devil. Right. Is the seed of the devil, the people who are unsaved? Yes, the seed of the devil is everybody. That's 1 John 3, 8. The reason that the Son of God has been manifest, I told you to remember that verse, is to destroy the works of the devil. That is exactly right. Because all people, from the moment that you were conceived, you are under the power of the devil. And that's gonna. I'm going to address that in a sermon this weekend. The reason why is because all people are sons of Adam. That's right. All people are sons of Adam. And I'm going to explain this now so that when you hear it in the sermon, you will grasp it. I was in Adam the moment that Adam was made. When he fell, too. And I was in him when he fell. I am in Adam because I came from Adam. And every human being that has existed since Adam was a son, potentially in Adam. Right? We were all in Adam. So when he fell, we fell with, with him. And there's no way to get around that. People don't like that. People will leave churches overhearing that because they have a family member that isn't saved or is dead and wasn't saved. And they don't want to hear that. And so what do they do? They go to another church and they try to find a church that will teach what they want to hear. Whether it's puppies or whether it's dead relatives or whether it's um, getting divorced. When you are not happy with somebody's theology, you will move along. Regardless of whether it's correct or not. And that's the sad part. If you have a dispute with somebody... You know what? I could sit in R.C. Sproul's church and I could enjoy it every single Sunday. I would sit there and I would disagree with him on dispensationalism and on election and a few other things, but he's a very, very talented man. 
I don't have these these burdens that that some people do that you just got to hate everybody because they disagree with you on one point or another. I've got people that, or we have people that attend in this church on Sunday that don't agree with me on the Nephilim. Have we gotten in a fight over it? No. He agrees with one thing and I agree with another and we both know what each other believes. But I'm not going to teach what I don't believe. That's the difference. I'm not going to teach what I don't believe and I do not believe that progressive revelation allows the Nephilim to be um, uh, angels or uh, hybrid of angels and men, nor does the rest of the Bible support it. If you watch that sermon, you will see I go through 90 minutes or whatever, however long the sermon is, 50 minutes, whatever, of explaining that precept. Anyway, let's get back into Romans. Um, okay, you read in this, this verse here that, that all have sinned without the law. Yes. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Right. He says... Uh, Apostleship to bring the obedience of faith among all Gentiles. Right, all nations. All, what he said, well, that's nations, yeah. Ethne. Yeah, but Rome was a Gentile church. They had Jews in it. But that's it was right. primarily a Gentile church, correct? Oh, yeah, I would think so. Yes. So, when when, he, when we get this, and he, I've heard it said that he's speaking to the Jews all the way through here, but he does include he, No, he speaks to Gentiles and then Jews, and I said yeah. that before. You might not have been here that week, but he speaks to both, and it's very hard to discern who he's actually speaking to mm -hmm. until you come to his conclusion, and then you say, oh, I see that. Okay. And he does that all the way through chapter 2. He's speaking to the Jews, but you don't know it until he comes down to... Well, um, he says what advantage has the Jews. In that's the, right. You know, he's including them. I Verse 28. Yeah. So, But yes, he's speaking specifically to a group of people, and he, he goes back and forth. If you, if you follow it carefully, he's now speaking to Gentiles. He's not speaking to Jews. The Jews are listening because all Scripture is profitable for teaching and instruction, right. but he's directing it to specific people. That's the same thing Peter is writing to the Jews. He's not writing to the Gentiles, right? So that's what's going on here, is that there's, there's this thing going back and forth with Paul as he's bringing all people to an understanding of what God has done. It pertains to you, Jew. It pertains to you, Gentile. And sometimes he ties both into one verse. But sometimes, or, or more often than not in Romans, he's going to both. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've really got a, something in my throat here. Um, uh, okay, a major premise of the Bible, and I got to that, is that a man is fall that man is fallen. Man encompassing man and woman. There's nothing um, PC in this class, right? Um, it, it just. It, it, Oh, I was somebody asked me about Bible versions a day ago, and I said, "Don't get this one because they've gone PC." In other words, instead of just saying "man," which encompasses all male and female, now they say "males and females." It, it, there's no need for that, right? I, it, the word in Greek, I think, is "adelphoi," and it can mean males and females. But when you addressed a body of people, especially in the Hebrew mind, if there was one male and 35 me females, you would still use the masculine. That's just the way it works. And that's the way it works in English up until a couple years ago. We, you know, if, if you're addressing a body of people, you would give the masculine. That's just how it works. Anyway, um, so uh, here we go. Uh, uh, a major premise of the Bible is that man has fallen. In order to reconcile this, God has worked through several dispensations to show us that that fallen state and our need for Jesus. That's what the dispensations are. Might as well stop really quickly because I haven't done this in a while. What are the seven dispensations? Innocence. innocence is right. Okay, you've got innocence. And God is working through these in order to show us all people are need for Christ. Innocence, that's in the garden, right? Yes. 
G A R. I know this is really getting bad. G A R D E N. Okay, and then the next one is. No, not yet. Begins with C O N S C I E N C. A conscience. E. That's right. Con S C I E N C E. This is after the fall and before the flood. So we'll say from flood to flood, fall to flood. Okay, and then after that, you come into. That's right, he got it. Government. Government, okay. And that is when he allows the people to run their, their what's going on here. And each one of these is mentioned in the New Testament. You can find a verse that will fit this dispensation. Um, government is um, from uh, after the flood. And it continues on, believe it or not. This is one of those that goes over the what is going on with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you know Israel and the law and all that. So this one actually continued on, um, but government, and then after that, you come to a guy named Abraham, and that is? Promise. That's right, promise. promise. So you've got the, the dispensation of promise. It's only to who? Jews. Not even the Jews. To Abraham and his, his seed. seed. And he is Abraham the Father Hebrew. Oh, okay. He is the Hebrew. Okay, what does Hebrew mean? Anybody know where this comes from? It comes from the the his forefather um, uh, Eber, which means and it, it means to cross over. So these are the people that have crossed over. They literally crossed over the river, okay, heading back west, all right. But they also crossed over spiritually. So it's to cross over. That's how you can know also that um, um, if you go to Daniel 12, where the uh, Lord is standing in the middle of the river, above the river, and there's one on each side, and it says, you know, you've got two people, one on each side, and that's how you know that Enoch and Elijah are the, um, it's one way to know that Enoch and Elijah are the um, two witnesses, is because one of them was on one side of the river, he had not crossed over, he's Enoch, and the other one is Elijah, and he had crossed over, right? And so, and the Lord is in the middle, okay? And so it's just a clue to you who the two witnesses are, the two people that stand. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, from promise, you've got Abraham the Hebrew, and that goes all the way down until we come to the next dispensation. The law, and that one will govern Israel for all of these years, and that's what we're looking at right now. That is the one that people like the Judaizers of Galatians and the Hebrew Roots movement of today still cling to. The law, I hate to tell you, you listen, you want to know about the law and it being obsolete. Sunday sermon is going to explain it to you in a completely new way, something I guarantee you've never heard before. If you pay attention to a, a few particular points that I'm going to make, I, I guarantee you've never heard this before. I've never read a commentary on it. But the law is done. Anyway, but that's the next dispensation. After the law, there are, the law does have a continuation, though, for how many years? Seven. Seven more years. And that is, well, we'll get to that in a second. The um, uh, law, and then the next one after law is? Grace. Oh, yes, isn't it wonderful? Amen. The The grace of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible end on? very last verse of the Bible. It ends grace on the grace. The grace of your Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It doesn't say let's go back to the law. Amen. Okay. After grace comes well no that's not a dispensation. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six. So there's only one more. Millennium. That's right. But that one millennium. Okay. So we've got the seven dispensations but the law actually will come in right here before the millennium one more time for seven years. That's why when it says the law is an old in Christ, the law is obsolete in Christ, 
It is. It's obsolete in Christ. But what does it also say in Hebrews, which is written after Paul's letters, which means it's written to the end-time Jews? It says that that which is uh, obsolete and is passing away. He says it present tense. Why would he do that? It's because they still have to go through seven more years. And so even though the law is annulled in Christ, and anybody that has come to Christ is not under law, Israel is given seven more years in the tribulation period. So we can't really say that the law is over, except for us, those who believe in Christ. So the Hebrew Roots Movement has made a fundamental mistake. They've gone back to what the Judaizers have done. They've placed themselves back under a law. It's not obsolete to them. What does he say? You're bound to the whole law. You're bound to the whole law. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, you are bound to the whole law. They have done that. They said, I'm going to go get circumcised. I'm going to stop eating pork. I'm going to start observing the Sabbath day. I'm going to do these things in order to merit God's favor. And they have now placed themselves back under the law. Imagine at the rapture, standing here, thinking, I've pleased God because I've been doing all of these things all along, and I missed the grace train. Can you imagine that? I, and now they've got to be beheaded in order to be saved. Right? Oh, what a tragic mistake. All right, so you got the millennium, and as I said, this one. But you know, they, they miss out. You said it doesn't apply to us. We're gone. We're gone. Yeah. That's right. None of this will apply to us. We're out of here during. You're absolutely right. But you've got this one here actually went all the way until the time of grace. Government, because the nation still has government. And it doesn't really end until the millennium, because that's when there'll be one major government and then all the subservient governments but the lord allowed the nations to go and do their own thing while these were reserved for a select group of people and that it's wonderful it's just it's in the structure of the bible which i haven't done this during the romans class but we will do it at some logical point the structure of the bible as i said shows you the dispensations of time. It shows you what's going on. It shows you the way that the, the Gospels are orchestrated, the way the book of Acts is orchestrated, where Paul's letters are, and what they're followed up with. All of us show this pattern right here, the structure of the Bible. And I realized that one day when typing an uh, earlier Genesis sermon. It suddenly dawned on me that that is what's going on, and that's what the prophecy of Noah over his sons, that's where that sermon, it was Genesis 9-whatever, um, when he was blessing his sons. That's when I realized this. And ever since then, it's just been opening up. What, what a wonderful thing he's given us in this book. Oh, okay, so going on. We've got the dispensations of time. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, <coughs> it's to show our fallen state and our need for Jesus. God did all of this for us in order to reveal him. That, you know, some people may have found the, uh, the uh, tabernacle symbolism tedious because we went so minutely into different words. But if you like that kind of thing, wasn't it amazing? Mm -hmm. Every single word points to Christ. Every word points to him. This incense, this ingredient for the incense, this ingredient for the anointing oil, all of it is intended to wake us up to the picture of Christ. And we're the recipients of that. That's why I can't understand anybody that would want to go back to the law. We've got all of it in Christ. And what do they do? These, these people... Like, just like the Judaizers of the past, the same people today will diminish one part of the Bible, one particular person who wrote a portion of the Bible. They will, they will malign him. They'll, they'll make up lies about you know, his writings. Is Paul. That's right, because Paul is the only thing that shows us what's going on in this age right now, and they don't want to accept that. And so what do they do? They say, oh, Paul's writings were corrupted, or they were this or that, or one thing or another. It's so sad. Hello, how are you? Okay, so 
Um, let's see here. In order to reconcile this, he's worked through the dispensations. Each of these dispensations leads us to a new understanding of our corrupt nature and our deserved condemnation before his glorious perfection. That's what these are for. The law is a what to lead us to? It's a schoolmaster or a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's right. And so uh, each one of these is intended to show us this. When we get to the millennium, people ask, I get that, this uh, question quite often, and it, it's a valid question. I'm not saying it's not a, a valid question, but they will ask, why are we going through the millennium? If Christ is to return, what's the point of that? What is the purpose of the millennium? Well, it's to usher in the kingdom, which was promised to Israel. That's one reason. But if it's to show the depravity of man, why would he do that? It's because what does it say after the millennium? What's going to happen? Gog and Magog are once again going to arise, and they're going to come even with the most idyllic possible conditions on earth, which are described in Isaiah, the beauty of the world at that time, the length that people live, the ages they live to, and all of the, the trouble-free world and life that they're living, and with Christ himself reigning from Jerusalem, they will still rebel. The devil will be released, and they will rebel, and it will show you that even under the most idyllic circumstances possible, man will rebel, rebel against God. It is in our nature, and that's why God has done these things, and that's why this dispensation is so important, is because it's this dispensation which is going to go on for all of eternity. It's, and that's why John ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We are utterly corrupt without Christ and we will dwell in Christ for all of eternity covering our corrupt nature forever. It's going to be wonderful without all this. Amen. Did you have a... No? Okay, I thought somebody had a question. Okay, so um, uh, Jesus confirms this fallen state. Actually, John confirms this fallen state in John 3.18 which is... Uh, Oh, no, John 3.18. Jesus, yes, I, I'm sorry, I was thinking of 1 John 3.8. Jesus confirms this uh, fallen state in John 3.18, and most of you can quote it already, but what does it say? It says John 3, verse 18. That's right. He who believes him not is not, con he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not, this is Jesus' words. These aren't mine. These aren't my words, okay? He who believes in him is not condemned. That means he who believes in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. From the moment you were conceived, you were conceived in Adam, and therefore you were condemned already. I didn't write those words. If you can find another way to explain them other than the clear and simple understanding of what Jesus said, explain it to me. But I, I have to tell you, that is the word of the Lord, and I can't find any other way to, to understand that passage than to say that all people... All human beings are condemned already. We can shake our fist. We can say it's not fair. We can storm out of that church and go to a universalist church where everybody goes to heaven and there's no hell. It doesn't change facts. Our theology has to be based on something. And, like, you know, another thing is, it, I was thinking about this as I was cleaning today because of the people that have consigned me to heck this past week. Is it? I said, you have to have your theology based on something. King James Onlyism is not based on anything. And you can say to somebody, well, this is the word of God, right? And we should obey, be obedient to this, right? Is that a smart thing for a person to do is to say, oh, that's the word of God and be obedient to it? I think no. I think, that's prop I think why we're here is to validate that it's the word of God. 
Because if somebody just says, this is the word of God and I should believe it, they do that to Muslims all the time. They raise them generation after generation with the Quran and say, this is the word of God. Oh, I believe it, right? The smart thing to do is to question everything. When I started reading this book, I questioned everything. I made notes. I said, why does this say this and this say this? And I found out, oh, I was the one that was wrong in that. I was misunderstanding this premise. It's not a contradiction. It was my fault. And then I come to something else that's complicated. And I say, this doesn't make sense. And then I find out, oh, this is from the wrong text. This is a mistranslation of this. And the, actual te the text actually says this. So it's, to me, it is not a smart thing for somebody to say, this is the word of God, and I want you to live by it, but don't check it out, right? And that's what too many people do. They say, this is the word of God, and I'm going to give you a sermon every Sunday morning, and just listen to me and believe what I tell you. That is the wrong way to come to, upon your theology. You come to your theology by saying, I want to know if this really is what it claims to be. And that's what I did with the, the Quran before I went to Malaysia. I bought a Quran and I read it on the airplane down and I finished it. And there was no light at all in there. And I still remember that. Okay? But I wanted to know, is this something that I should understand? Is this something that maybe is correct? And so that's why I did that. Buddhism, you can think about that. You can read some of their writings and you can say, well, that makes sense to me or that doesn't make sense to me. But to just disregard Buddhism without understanding why you're disregarding it doesn't help anything. And that's the same with the Bible. People diminish the Bible. I've got a person whose husband is not saved right now, and she's emailing me with all kinds of stuff, trying to get me to help her husband, okay? And as long as he's willing to say, I will check those things out, that's good. If he's not, then I'm wasting my time, and she's wasting her time. But if he's willing to say, yes, I will think about that, and I will see if it co compares to my religious document, which happens to be the Quran then, you know, they're making the right choice. Because I know Jehovah's Witnesses that don't do this. I know Mormons that don't do this. We should do it as well. We should say, I want to know if this is true or not. Now, I think everybody here has come to the point where they do believe it's true. But it's not smart to just say to somebody, this is the word of God and you should believe it without questioning it. Because then that just limits you to exactly whatever this guy says on Sunday morning. And that's it. So, anyway... Um, uh, as he notes, and I just said in John um, 3, we are condemned already. Fallen man needs to do nothing. We don't need to do anything to go to hell. He is, fallen man, we, he, is already on that road. That's the path that we're on. What we need to do is to do something to get off of that path. And that's what Jesus talks about, you know, talking about the wide path and the narrow path. And what he needs is an avenue of escape from that path. This is the plan of salvation, as the Bible reveals, and which ultimately takes us to Jesus and the cross of Calvary. And that's what all of these things here are for, are to lead us to that. Now, we ended up here, but the cross was kind of, you know, at the end of the law and at the beginning of grace. So we're looking back on it, but we're still on the same avenue. We have to go back to the cross in order to be saved. For us in America, it's, you know, generally easier because we're, I grew up in uh, uh, Sarasota, Florida here, and I grew up in my mom, under my mom and dad, and we went to the Episcopal Church. And so even though I wasn't saved, I was in church and I assumed that I was a Christian, right? If somebody asked me, well, I'm a Christian. That's just what we do, okay? And then when we find out what Christ did, it's easier to make that transition than maybe somebody from somewhere else that needs to be explained more in detail. So for us, it might be less of a leap. But, and I've always said, you know, something like um, Jews and um, Catholics, 
always seem to make the best Christians. If you came out of Catholicism or if you came out of Judaism, why? Judaism already has all of the, the understanding of the law. They have the understanding of the feasts. They have the understanding of all of the things, circumcision, everything that points to Jesus. And if they can make that mental connection to Jesus, all of a sudden, everything that they have done in their whole life makes sense. The Catholics have the same thing. They have all of the theology. They have the Trinity. They have, you know, they understand the deity of Christ. They understand all of those things very well just like me and the Anglican Church, that's or the Episcopal Church. We had all of that. We just didn't have the heart for it. And once you make that understanding of who Christ is, you have all the theology already. You don't need to make all of that giant leap to, well, now I need to know if the how can this guy be God? And you're taught that from the beginning. So Catholics in particular make great Christians because they already have that sound theology. And when they get the heart for Jesus, man, they get away from all the legalism of the Catholic Church. They get away. They're free. And you just see how they just, they blossom. It's wonderful to see. Anyway, um, so the Bible reveals and which ultimately, ultimately takes us to Jesus and the cross of Calvary. Before the cross or after, we all have to end up at the cross. Along that path, God introduced the law. This, is, this period, <clears throat> excuse me, is one of the dispensations God gave to the world. It shows us his standards and what man can do to live by them, right? That's what we've been going through, and we're going to go through for, you know, eons to, before we get through with the law. God gave his standard to Israel. If you do these things, you will live by them. What's that? Uh, Leviticus 18, I think, somewhere in there. He, he, and Paul quotes that in the New Testament. If you do these things, you will live by them. And Paul picks it up, up on that verse later in Romans, and he says nobody can do those things. That is his standard. And we're already fallen, so we can't meet them anyway. But even if we weren't, well, I shouldn't say if we weren't fallen, because we are. So it's, it's, it's illogical to even say that. Jesus was not fallen because he wasn't born of a man. He was born of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. And so he is fully God, and he was able to do what we cannot do. Anyway, um, along that path, God introduced the law. This period is one, I already said that. Um, Paul explains, though, that no one can meet its standards perfectly. Romans 3, 19 and 20. We'll go ahead to that real quickly, and I'm sure that's him quoting what I just said. Romans 3, <clears throat> 19 and 20. Yes, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That makes sense. If you're under the law, it's speaking to you. Okay, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. He's already shown that Gentiles are already guilty, right? We're all born under Adam, we're guilty. Well, the people under the law are shown that they are guilty before God, all right? Therefore, verse 20, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's why we're going through the law. I said that, I think, two sermons ago. This is why we study the law, is to understand the greatness of what Jesus did. Until we understand what all of these things picture and how he was able to overcome the things that we can't, we can't really appreciate his work. I mean, we can, you know, people all the time. If you were a drunk your whole life and you come to Jesus, you can understand the greatness of Jesus. But unless you understand it's not just drunks, it's not just rebellious, it's everybody Every one of those laws encompasses something that we are incapable of doing. And that shows you how great Christ is. And so studying the law 
is never to be you know diminished it's not something that we want to take lightly we want to take it with a sense of you know God's holiness and we want to say thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ um, <laughs> excuse me wow um, I know I, I was just going to get a cough drop but then I'll be talking and I'll swallow it while I'm eating and I don't want uh, while I'm talking and I don't want to do that so um, somebody giving me CPR here on the floor um, okay um, even the law itself shows us this by offering okay I, I, let me go back. I want to ask you this. Paul explains, though, that no one can meet its standards perfectly, meaning the law, right? And then I just read you. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. How could the people of Israel know that that is true? They can know that 100% that what I just read from Romans, they can know that that's true. Every year they had to come That's exactly right. Every year they had to go down to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. And it says that you will you know, deny yourself. They're to fast all day. They're to confess their sins before the Lord. The high priest goes in and does all of the things that he does. And the people are forgiven for another year. The very fact that they went down to Jerusalem and the fact that that they confess their sins before God shows them that they could not meet the standards of the law. And if somebody stayed back up in, in you know, the Galilee and did his farming and says, I don't need to go down there. It said one of two things, either he doesn't care and he's a fool, or two, he thinks that he's met God's standard. And that person has to be judged before the law because the law mandated that he went down there telling them that you did not meet the standard. Always went up to Went up to Jerusalem, yes. But what did I say? I said, you said down. Oh, yeah, you never go down to Jerusalem. You go down to the Galilee and up to Jerusalem. That's, that's right. So I thank you for saying that. That's always the case in the Bible. Jerusalem is up, regardless of elevation or regardless of direction you're traveling from. You are always going up. Yes, sir. Can I question that? <clears throat> uh, we, uh, that they had to come to Passover. Yes. And to Pentecost. Yes. And then to the Feast of Tabernacles. Right. Went to Yom Kippur. They had to go at Yom Kippur. They had to go. Here's what it says. Let, let's read that. They, those were the three pilgrim feasts, but it also says right here in uh, Leviticus. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get you more. Um, it may not be exactly here, but um, uh, uh, let's see here. Um, <coughs> holy rape. Um, Twenty-three. You shall count your Sabbath. Okay. When you reap the harvest. Okay. Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and uh, offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not work on that does any work on that same day, that person. I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute throughout your generations, all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Um, and I know that it says, and I'm going to have to get you the verse, I know that it says specifically they have to go to Jerusalem to do that. Every man shall present himself, but I, I don't think I want to... Let me look very quickly, try to do a search on that, because you brought it up, and I don't want to... Uh, have somebody have a wrong squiggle in their brain. Um, so give me just a second to lift that up. <coughs> and um, Day of Atonement for you. I know this will take a second, but I just don't want somebody to have something in their head that if I'm wrong. So um, they, uh, let's see, your Bible gateway is what I want. Bible, B-I-B-L. 
have it, Bible Gateway, B-I-B-L-E, Gateway. Okay, there it is, Bible Gateway. Give me just a second. <coughs> and um, But yes, you're right, there are three pilgrim feasts that they were required to go down there and do certain things, but um, let's see here, Bible Gateway, and I, I'm positive in my head, and if I'm wrong, I'm gonna have water all over my face, but I'm positive in my head that they have to go to Jerusalem for this, this um, and if I can't find it now, I will look for it when I get home. Day of Atonement, A, D, O, N, I don't know, we'll just do that. Let's see here, Leviticus 16 maybe. Um, let's see here, you shall offer a burnt offering, 61, spoke to um, Lord said Moses, um, 23, 23, for is a day of atonement, 23, I read, you shall cause a trumpet to be sounded, um, atonement for himself, then the priest shall offer, you shall have a holy convocation, Numbers 29, and um, Ezekiel. Let me try Numbers 29, 7 really quick. I just want to look for this, just, and I'll see if I can find that. Numbers 29, 7. Uh, let's see here. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict yourself. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, a sweet offering, the grain offering. Fifteenth day. Okay, it doesn't say it there. Um, and then... Leviticus 16 gives the instructions for it, but I don't think it mentions whether the people have to come down there. It's uh, Aaron down there, the bull. Um, anyway, okay. I don't see it. Anyway, I, I could be wrong. It could be that they do not have to actually present themselves to Jerusalem, but they have to afflict their souls. Well, but that I, would be five days later for the Feast of Tabernacles. Right. Was, right. Yeah, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is one of the pilgrim feasts. You have the three pilgrim feasts, yeah. but I still think they had to go specifically to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. And like I said, I, I, I could be wrong on that. Um, I, I'm not finding it here. Uh, let me look at one more thing, and I know people are online and they're thinking, well, this is boring, but um, <laughs> I, I really don't want people to have a, a wrong squiggle in their head because of my incompetence. So give me just one second, Atonement, um, and let me see if I can... See if I can find any other reference to it without day of Leviticus 16, Exodus 29. Um, uh, let's see here. Seven days you should make atonement. Atonement 30. Um, put his hands on atonement for sins. Priest, priest shall offer him. I'm. I, where is this? Every man shall. It's like in my head. You know, it's one of those things that I'm certain that it says if you don't come down. The Lord won't forgive you, but it could be just the fasting. Anyway, we're not going to go on with that. If I will look for it. If somebody reminds me of that, I'd appreciate it because I'll get home and not remember that. And um, next week I'll give you an answer as to whether they actually had to be in Jerusalem or not. But I, I, I feel confident they do. Um, but it was something that every man had to do. Every, I, 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 It's right in my head. I'm not going to go anymore with it. We'll get it next week. Okay, um, anyway, one way or another, whether they went to Jerusalem or not, the point is that every man knew that they had to observe the Day of Atonement. Every person had to afflict their souls, and if they didn't, they were cut off from the Lord their God. Whether they were in Jerusalem or not, every person was required to, and we just read that in um, uh, Leviticus 23. You had to do this. If you did not acknowledge your sins before the Lord, you were not forgiven for that year. And that's the important part about that, is that they had to actively do something in order to... Um, uh, be forgiven. And once again, the Day of Atonement is a picture of our atonement. It's a picture of us in Christ. And it never says anywhere in the Bible that the people were, um, you know, uh, what is the term that R.C. Sproul would use? That they were uh, predestined to go to Jerusalem and to 
confess their sins before the Lord. In other words, it's something that we have to do. We have to say, I am a sinner, I need Jesus. And to say that you are saved apart from your will, to me, I, it, I just don't read the Bible that way. I do not read the five points of Calvinism which say that we are saved you know, completely and wholly by God, which is monergism. That means God does all of the work and there's nothing we have to do. I believe that we are, it's called synergism. We have to do something. We have to acknowledge our sin before the Lord. We have to acknowledge that Christ is Lord, you know, uh, uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10. That's something that we have to do. R.C. Sproul would disagree with that, and we can go on the board in a different study where it's, it's a little involved and long, but it's something that I believe that we are not predestined in order to be saved and regenerated by the Spirit, and then we're saved. That makes no sense, to be regenerated by the Spirit in order to be saved. It doesn't make any sense. You believe, and then you receive, according to Paul. Anyway, don't want to get off on that, but... Um, uh, so, um, yes, it's true. They had to go, whether they had to go to Jerusalem or not, they had a Day of Atonement, and without that Day of Atonement, acknowledging it, they were not saved before the Lord. So even the law itself showed them that they couldn't be saved by the law. They needed a precept within the law to save them from the law, if that makes any sense. And David actually explains this to us, and I think Paul says this in, um, yes, Romans chapter 4. He's going to quote David. He's going to say from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose law, lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, why would he say that? Why would David say that and Paul quote that in the New Testament? It's to show them that even under the law, they were not saved by the law. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. That means it's coming from outside of the law, not from within the law. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, still got more notes on this one. Um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Okay, yeah, I said the law shows us this. The second half of today's verse, which is, um, let me read it again. This is <clears throat> Romans 2, I think we're in verse 12. Is that where we are? Yes, Romans 2, 12 is um, the second half of the verse. Says, For as many have sinned without the law will also perish without law. The second half, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay? As many have sinned. This is the fair and equitable standard to which the Jew, whom Paul has been addressing, could find no place to object. A Jew could not object to those words there. They were the recipients and bearers of God's law, and they lorded their position of favor over those who did not possess the law. Well, to me, that's about that doesn't make any sense. Well, we've got the law. And so they hold it over them and say, see, we're saved by the law. Well, they're not saved by the law, and that's what Paul is saying to them. Here, they're lording something over the Gentiles when, in fact, the law is actually condemning them. They need a provision within the law itself to save them from the law. Okay? Um, they were the recipients and bearers of God's law, and they lorded that position over the people who didn't possess the law. And yet, the very law they felt favored them is actually what brought about a stricter judgment and a greater condemnation. What does Jesus say about um, uh, those who uh, know to do right and do not do it shall receive? Is that um, you know? Um, beaten with many stripes. Yes, beaten with many stripes. Thank you. So the people that know to do right and they don't do it are the ones that get the greater judgment, and that's what the law is telling them. All of this is showing us a progression of what we need, which is Jesus. 
God is very methodical in how he's doing these things, and that's why the millennium obviously comes after the time of grace. Because if the millennium came first, we still wouldn't understand the grace. It, 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 everything that God has done in the seven dispensations of time is so marvelous. It's so marvelous what he has done for us. I just don't understand how people can, can't see it. But, you know, I look at myself up until I met, the time I met Christ, and, you know, you're just blinded. And all of a sudden you say, what was I thinking? Did you feel that way? Yeah, they've got a couple of heads here nodding. I mean, I just, what was I thinking? Because I don't even remember how I couldn't feel the way I do now that I understand the goodness of Christ. Anyway, the law leads, um, is what brings about stricter judgment and greater condemnation. In essence, and as long as Paul will explain in his writings, the law was given to demonstrate two great lessons to the world. Actually, there are many, and I went through seven of them in a sermon not too long ago, but the two great lessons to show how utterly sinful sin is to God. That's verse Romans verse 7, 13, where he says this. He says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, meaning the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. God is showing us how utterly sinful sin is to him by giving us his standard. This is my standard, now go live by it. And they can't, and it's showing them how utterly sinful we are before God. That's why it's so great that we're not under the law. That's why it's so hard to fathom why somebody would say, I'm going to go back from this one and I'm going to go back under this one. I'm going to reinsert myself under the law. And I can't tell you how many people do that. I got, just this past week, I got an email from a guy. And he never responded, so I imagine he was actually curious and not belligerent. Because normally somebody will ask a question and you give them the answer and then they come back and they just start, you know, ridiculing you. But he said, do you mean that, I don't know, you know, because it's an email, I don't know the inflection of his voice. So he either said, do you mean that I don't have to observe the law and I don't have to observe a Sabbath? Or was he asking, do you mean I don't have to? You know, maybe his, his wife or something has been going to this church and she's saying, yeah, we've got to observe these laws. I don't know which one it was, but I gave him all of the answers from the book of Hebrews. You know, the law is obsolete, it is nulled, blah, blah, blah. I went through all of that. And then I also threw in a couple of Paul. I try not to throw in too much Paul if they're one of these people because they've already decided that they don't want to hear from Paul. But show him from the book of Hebrews where it is, and I sent it back to him, and I never heard another word. So I imagine he was honestly curious instead of belligerent, because when somebody's belligerent, you give them an answer, and they come back, and they just start, you know, it's just brutal. Anyway, um, so that's the first one, is to show how utterly sinful sin is to God, and the second is to show fallen man his desperate need for something better. This is the one that Burke mentioned a minute ago, something apart from the law. Something without which there is no hope. And that's in Galatians 3. Let me take you there really quickly. We've already said it, but I might as well read it to you right out of the word. Galatians 3. And we'll go down to verse 20. And it says, now, uh, is it 21? 21. <clears throat> is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin, which is what we just said. Uh, Greek and Jew both are under sin. He's repeating himself from Romans. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise given by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Nothing to do with law, totally to do with faith. 
Verse 23, but before faith came, meaning the age of grace, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Okay? And then going on, therefore the law was, as he said, our tutor, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, meaning the law. We are not under the law. Once again, don't allow anybody, if you decide to change your church or if you decide to change your Bible study, to do this to you. Anything else may be debatable. You want to become a replacement theologian and think that uh, the church has replaced Israel, it's not going to take away your joy in Christ. It, you know, it, it, It's obviously something I disagree with, but those guys are saved over in that church under R.C. Sproul. It's not a matter of salvation. And too, too often we'll see people say something like, all true Christians should support Israel. I, I just don't understand that. You know, you tell somebody about Jesus down in the uh, jungles of South America, they don't even know what an Israel is. It's true that if you're a mature Christian and you've read this book and you understand this book, you should say, aha. <coughs> but everybody here had to be trained in dispensationalism. When I asked you what the dispensations were, some of you got them out of order. There was a little bit of quiet on one of them, right? So it's something we have to keep reminding ourselves about. Nothing wrong with that. But to say that all true Christians should support Israel is a very, very general statement that's being brought into a very, very specific issue, which most people don't even understand. If they can't get this, then how are they going to understand Israel's position in the world today? Theology matters, doctrine matters, but one step at a time, okay? Um, so the law was a tutor which was meant to take us by the hand and lead us directly to our need for God's unmerited favor don't let anybody take you back under the law like I said any of those other tenets any other those other points you can probably live with and still have joy but if you get away from this you will have no joy you'll be sitting at home every Saturday trying to observe a Sabbath not doing things that you could be doing, thinking, I'm earning God's favor here, when in fact all you're doing is you're upsetting him. Because now we who believe do rest in him, Hebrews 4.3. This is our rest. It's not sitting at home on Saturday pretending that we're being a, a pious Christian. It's about being in Jesus Christ and understanding the fullness of what he has done for us. Okay, life application. Oh, we've got 20 more minutes. Are you trusting in deeds of the flesh to obtain God's favor? Deeds of the flesh meaning deeds of the law, okay? Are you doing that? If so, turn away from this mindset and the futility that it produces and come to God's fountain of grace, which is Jesus. Place your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation and then accomplish works which will demonstrate the change that has taken place in you. And be sure to tell others about what God has done. All are under a sentence of condemnation, and all need Jesus, okay? I know that's hard. I know that people don't want to hear that all are condemned already. But once again, I didn't say those words, and I didn't write those words. Jesus said them. John penned them. All I can do is say, this is what the Bible says, and I need to tell people that there is one path to God, and if you're not on that path, you're on a different one, okay? Verse 213. Let's see here. Um, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. Okay, you hear the law? Moses read the law to the people, right? Actually, in Genesis 20, the Lord spoke out the Ten Commandments to the people, and they all heard it. Were they doers of the law? 
No. Very quickly, they weren't doers of the law. We went through probably 10 sermons on them not doing the law. They said they were going to do it. They said they were going to do it. They promised they were. And then after Moses came back down the mountain, there was this problem. And then he goes back up. And then what's going to happen in just a few more chapters when we get into Numbers or after Leviticus? You get into Numbers and just a few chapters into there, they turn away from the Lord again. It's not the hearers of the law who are justified in God's sight, right? Uh, let me read this. But the doers of the law will be justified. And Paul's shown us later in here that nobody can do the law, all right? And so nobody's justified in the sight of God by the law, okay? But how does that pertain to us then? If we're not just hearers of the law, but we're doers of the law in order to be justified, then how are we, you and I, justified before God? He imputes it to us. Because Christ did the law. Yes. Once again. And I, the reason why I'm asking that from different angles is so if somebody is watching that is stuck in this idea that I, I'm not supposed to be eating pork, they can understand this. He did those things. He lived out the law for us. We are not doers of the law in ourselves. We are doers of the law in Christ. Thank you. In Christ we have done the law. So we are doers of the law because of the work of Christ. To add to that, by going back and trying to do the law, is only to say that what he did is insufficient. And I'm sorry, God, what you did wasn't good enough, and I'm going to take care of it from here. That is exactly what that is. That is exactly what it is when somebody says, I'm going to follow right back here and start <coughs> doing the Sabbath day, and I'm going to do all these other things. And it breaks my heart because, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist... Here's another thing. I'm going to tie two thoughts into one so that I don't get too, too down on King James-only people today. But, first, what Bible was used that started all the major cults of the 18th and 19th centuries? The King James Version. That's right. The Mormons used it. The Jehovah's Witnesses used it. The Seventh-day Adventists used it. And now they will tell you, King James-only people will tell you that all these modern versions today are what's leading to the end times apostasy. When the end times apostasy started as Paul was writing his books, that's why he gave us these books, is to get us away from the things that were already happening. And it really took root in the 1800s with the formation of these major cults coming out of the King James Version. But they will never acknowledge that. They'll say, oh, you know. So that's my little slam on them with that, but to take you to the second precept is that the Seventh-day Adventists, regardless of what translation they used, the Seventh-day Adventists reinsert the law. They reinsert the seventh day, and they say that the seventh day is the greatest of God's law. It's the highest of God's law. It's not. It's one of the four, and it's surprisingly, the thing that's so surprising, it's the one of the Ten Commandments, which is actually the one that's not even mentioned as being required in the New Testament. The other nine are, and yet the Sabbath isn't, and yet they take that one and they elevate it up here. So you see how important theology is and how important it is to understand things in context. Paul says it at least four different ways, right? And the author of Hebrews says it one way, that the Sabbath is not something, and that's what is so heartbreaking about it, is that people are told something, they're raised up in a Seventh-day Adventist church and that they have that brain squiggle and that is set and they will not change their theology unless they're willing to say, I could be wrong. That's right. And that's why I said at the beginning of this, we should not tell people, we should tell them that this is the word of God, that this is God's inspired word, but we should not tell them, trust me on this. We should tell them, come to Bible class and let's check this out and let's see if it really is. 
okay? Read it. Study to show yourself approved because anybody can believe anything. Yes, I will always hold this as God's infallible, perfect word, but I want people to make that decision for themselves as well, okay? And that's what we should be doing. We should be challenging people. Just like these emails that I'm spending my time sending to this lady who has a husband who's caught up in a different religion. It's important to me. And if a Seventh-day Adventist emails me and they start you know, consigning me to heck because I'm not worshiping on a, a, a Saturday, then I try to, I try to deal with these people Probably because it's important. Do they use the Bible as we have? Oh yeah, oh, they do. absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if they use different versions That's like we meant, do, yeah. but they, they started out with the King James and I don't know what they use in, in a, a standard uh, Seventh-day Adventist church now, but you know, it, they're very close. I gotta tell you, I was out at a Seventh-day Adventist church, you know, right after I met the Lord and my children were playing the violin in school and they had a concert at the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it was very nice. The theology was very close, but it was off. Okay, there, there, there was the works involved in making it to heaven, and you know, it, you listen to what somebody says, and it sounds right, but you know, there's something wrong. It was off, and then you understand that they are trusting in their works, and they have completely ignored the book of Galatians. And if they read it, they read it with presuppositions, which are just firmly fixed in them. So. Oh, it's so important to understand the law and to understand what comes after the law, which is grace. It's just, you can't get away from it. Um, 2.13, I read it. Uh, we are continuing on with a series of verses which need to be looked at from a broad scope of Scripture and not as individual standalone thoughts. If we take these verses and cite them without proper context, a completely wrong conclusion of what Paul is actually trying to say will be derived. When he says in verse 13 ought to be obvious in the plain sense. If you only hear the law and don't do what the law says, the law is of no value at all, right? You hear the law and you just walk away. I heard the, the voice on the mountain and I just turned around and did what I wanted to do. The law is of no value at all. And anybody can come to that conclusion. You hear the law, don't drive over, my, you know, my, uh, my uh, dad says to me when I'm 15, don't drive over 40 on Midnight Pass Road or you're gonna get a ticket. And I go 65 miles an hour down Midnight Pass Road and I get a ticket. I heard the law, but it had no effect on me, right? That's what that's talking about. That didn't happen. I never got ticketed for 65 on Midnight Pass Road. Um, yeah. <laughs> Peter said something back there. I heard some chuckling. But anyway, um, the law, if you hear it and you don't do it, that's obvious. To understand this, oh, I give you a, a, an example. To understand this, just think of a sign by the train tracks. Stay off the tracks when a train is approaching. The people who live in the area have this law, just as Israel had the law, right? But then one guy in town, who's a real smart fellow, decides to take his family for a stroll on Sunday, on the tracks. Obviously, being one who is the law posted was of no value to him and his family, and yes, the funeral is Tuesday at 10 a.m., right? He saw the law, but he didn't hear it, and he didn't obey it. That's it was better example than my midnight pass one. I forgot I typed that. Anyway, James writes similar words in his epistles as well in James 1, 22 through 25. Let me read that to you very quickly. What book of the Bible is James? What number book in the Bible? 59. Don't forget that. Hebrews is, I'm sorry, James is 59. Okay. The what? Be doers. Be, yes. Be, okay, thank you. That's exactly what I want you to read. Uh, 1, 22 through 25. Um, that's exactly what it is. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forget what, forgets what kind of man he was. But if he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So I walk up to the, the mirror, and I look in there, and I see my beard is all over like this, because I've been sleeping on my pillow, and my hair is over here. And I think, i got to get that fixed. Then I walk away, and I forget. I'm not, that's what he's trying to tell us. We're, we're messy. We're, we're broken. There's something wrong with us. And then God gives us this wonderful thing, and he says, I'll fix you with this. That's what he does. And we can either listen and not pay attention, or we can listen and pay attention. If we don't pay attention, we look just as bad to God as we were the day before. But if we pay attention, then we be, we're molded and we're shaped. So um, he wrote about that in James 1.22. The law, which is only a portion of the word, has a particular part and purpose in God's redemptive plan. But that purpose ended at the cross of Jesus. We talked about that just a minute ago. Our righteousness, our obedience to the law is through Christ, not in the law itself. In Matthew 5.17, it notes that Jesus came not to destroy the law and the prophets, and people always cite that, and they stop right there. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. They always stop at, I didn't come to destroy it, and they start saying, see, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you get neurotic, and you're sitting there, and you're going, oh, what am I going to do? He came to fulfill it, and fulfill it he did. It is done. It is over. Okay, even under the law, he was telling them that there is an end to the law. And as I said, Sunday's sermon is going to make this so obviously clear that if somebody watches it and says, I disagree with that, I have no, no idea how to, to lighten their eyes to it. None. It is so obvious. I'm going to ask you a question, which I'm going to ask at the beginning of the sermon. I'm going to ask you it right now, and I want you to think about it. Don't give me an answer now. Why... Did the Bible record that Aaron went up on Mount Nebo and he was with Moses and he was with his son and it says that they took his garments off of him, his priestly garments, and he died. Why does it say that? And I'm even going to make it easier on you. Why does it say it in that order? Okay? Think about it. And then on Sunday, I'm going to ask that again, and I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to tell you what, it is so obvious. What, why does God tell us these things? You know, you read that a million times, and you never give it any thought at all, and that is so critical to understanding what is going on in the Bible. It is so critical that I, I don't know how somebody listening to that sermon will be able to say, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to continue with deeds of the law. Why does it say that when Aaron died... He was, went up with Moses, and he went up with his son, Aaron's son, and it says they took his garments off of him, and he died. Okay? They took Aaron's son garments off? No, no, no. They took Aaron's garments off of Aaron, and then he died. Okay? Thanks. All right. Anyway, there you go. That's that's my question. we got five more minutes, so i got to finish up this verse. And um, I, I, I'm telling you, it is so, I'm sitting here typing the sermon and I'm trying to think of how can I explain this to somebody and that precept came to me. And it, it is so clear what God is trying to show us. It is so obvious. I'm going to make it even easier on you. I'm going to make it even easier, okay, when you're thinking about this. How did Jesus hang on the cross? That's right, he was wearing nothing. 
I don't care what pictures we look at. He was wearing nothing. He, his robe was taken off before he died. And I'm going to tell you what, that bears directly on what it says about Aaron. Okay, think about that. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, the law, which is only a portion of the word, has a particular part and purpose in God's redemptive plan, but that purpose ended at the cross. Matthew 5.17. It knows that Jesus didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, and fulfill them he did. They are now set aside. That means put over here. The law is put over here. That's Hebrews 10, verse 9. If a, a person that wants to reinsert the law, you need to take them to Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. And it says the same thing three times in three different ways. It is set aside. The point that needs to be more carefully evaluated is that the law itself says in Leviticus, and I was right, 18.5, because I said this earlier, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgment, with a, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul quotes this verse twice, once in Romans 10.5 and then in Galatians 3.11 and 12. He says that no one, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. So much for this here, going back up under the law. So what is he talking about in this verse here? Is Paul confused? Let me read it again. Verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just, <coughs> just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then he says that nobody can be justified by the law. Right? Is he confused? Is he? No. The reason is that the law, just like all of God's dealings with man, is ultimately based on faith, not on works. This is why people that say you have to have fruits in order to prove that you were saved are wrong. Because the fruits that James is talking about in James 2.24 are all described already in Hebrews as deeds of faith. By faith Abraham. By faith Rahab the harlot. The same ones that James cites are already explained in Hebrews as being deeds of faith. Okay, The law itself requires works but they are works which demonstrate to us our inability to meet the very law on which the works are based. As was noted in evaluating the previous verse, the law was given to show the utterly sinful nature of sin and to lead us to seek out God's mercy and forgiveness. The law itself shows us this in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. What is it? Come on, Burke. Yes. The just shall live by faith. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He doesn't say the law. That's why they were exiled, is because they weren't doing the deeds of the law, and they weren't expressing faith in God, who does not impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, right? Okay, so, therefore, what Paul is saying today is that it is not that the law justifies a person or can justify a person, only that the doers of the law will be justified. And none except Jesus are truly doers of the law unless they're living by faith. Okay? And so that is the resolution. I'm going to read it to you. So here is the resolution. The law was given and no one can meet its standards perfectly. Therefore, faith is required that despite not meeting it, the law... God will provide salvation to those who will trust him and not in themselves. Self-reliance in meeting deeds of the law is not trusting in God. It's trusting in self. If I say I'm going to go home and observe the seventh day every week with the Seventh-day Adventist, you're not trusting in God. You're trusting in yourself. And all you're doing is you're separating yourself further from God. You're not getting goodie points for it. 
Okay? Then Jesus came to fulfill the law that we cannot fulfill. Now by faith in his accomplishing the law and then becoming our sin offering at the cross, we now stand justified before God. It is faith in God's providence at all times and in all dispensations which reconcile us to God. People, I've heard it many times, people say, well, the law was faith plus works. The law was never faith plus works. The law was always a faith, always. From the very giving of the law itself, it was a faith only. All right? Um, did I read that? Yes. Uh, are you living by faith? Here's my final thought. Perfect, right on time. Are you living by faith in what Jesus did, or are you trying to please God through your own deeds? Have faith in what God has done through Jesus, and then you will be able to please God with your deeds because they are based on faith, not on the act itself. Above all, God looks for faith in his faithless creatures, and so a little bit will do. All right? Doctor, would you close us out in prayer tonight? Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, it's a joy that we can come and study your word. We especially thank Charlie for founding the word to us. Lord, we especially this time of the year thank you for the blessings that you have given us with Christ. We thank you, Lord, for his love, his grace, mm -hmm. his mercy, and shed blood that has been demonstrated. We thank you. Lord, we just pray as we go our way. Please, we pray, Father, that radiate Jesus Christ as we go. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, really quickly, let me back up the camera so you all can say goodbye to those online. And while I'm doing that, um, uh, where am I going? Break. Don't forget that Paul has Christmas tracks specifically for Christmas. So if you want to take some, please do. Take them, hand them out. And um, uh, be to be handing out tracks all year anyway, but let's go ahead and say uh, goodbye to everybody. Yeah, there they are. Okay, have a wonderful night, and we love all of you, okay? Take good care, and let me uh, push live. There we go. Yeah, appear before me. I wish you had said that earlier. I, I am certain. I am so certain that it is... Well, that's right, but I, I, I am certain that, that that is the the, the term that I was looking for. I'm going to do it too. M A L E A T P A T P E A R before. Okay. Okay. Three, oh, no, that's the one for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, no, those are the same. Those are the Pilgrim Feasts. That's right, okay. Now, I, I think you might be right, Doctor. You may not have to go specifically to Jer Jerusalem, but you do have to, you have to meet the requirements of it, whether it's there or not. I'm still going to check that, but 